Paul was a tent maker. Uh, in fact, he'd made much more than that. If you research that in the original Greek, uh, tents were made out of leather in that day. He was a leather worker. He made all kinds of things. Uh, but I can almost picture him trying to figure out how many more tents he could make each month so he could sponsor as many books as possible had he been given this opportunity. Because Paul was absolutely relentless in getting the message out to as many people as possible from city to city because it was his heartbeat. It was his desire uh, to see people come to Christ. And so my question today and for this message this morning for this church is, what is your greatest desire? What do we desire the most as individuals and as a church? What is your greatest desire? It's clear that Paul's greatest desire was to please God, which we've seen as we've been following him around and the other apostles over the past several months in our sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and today we're going to continue that journey as we study our way through chapter 17 together in a message entitled Desire. So let's turn. If you have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen as well to chapter 17 in the book of Acts. As always, uh, we'll work our way verse by verse through the chapter, and then we may slow down a bit once we get to the second half of our text and spend some time talking about this subject, about desire. You'll remember from last week that Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, where they ultimately led the Philippian jailer and his entire family to Christ before being finally released from prison and leaving the city. And so here we pick up the story where we left off at chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue uh, to the Jews, or of the Jews. Okay, so we know that Paul's been in Macedonia, and now he's traveling on the main east-west Roman highway. It's called the Ignatian Way, which connected all of these cities in the region. They were all about a, a day's journey apart by foot. And he arrives here at Thessalonica, uh, which is the capital city, uh, by the way, of Macedonia. Okay, verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Okay? The, the Jews generally rejected the idea that the Messiah had to suffer, even though that was spelled out in the Old Testament writings uh, that they followed, that they subscribed to, particularly in Psalm 22, uh, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12 and 13. Still the Jews needed convincing, and Paul was doing his level best to prove to them by their own scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and that Jesus himself was in fact the Christ. And when it says Paul reasoned with them, in verse 2, that word reasoned in the original Greek language is dialegomai, which means to converse or have discourse with, with someone. It means to argue and discuss. In other words, Paul wasn't simply going around giving lectures in the synagogue, okay? Teaching in the church was one thing. In Acts 2.42, it tells us that those early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was something entirely different. As Paul is trying to persuade those outside the church to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. According to the original Greek, Paul was having an ongoing discussion with these people. These were lengthy conversations about Scripture and how Jesus related to those Scriptures, coupled with personal testimonies. And we should not skip over this part because this is, uh, or at least should be, a model for evangelism today. 
we should be engaging people where they are on a personal level, having ongoing discussions where we share the gospel and our testimony, which are two different things, by the way. We talked about that in the past few weeks, so I won't go over it again today. But the point is, effective evangelism requires more than a good presentation or a clever argument. There is a real need for ongoing discussion in our efforts to evangelize this culture, this generation that we're, we're in, which is precisely why I cannot stand the practice of using social media to try and debate the doctrines and theologies of Christ. Debating on social media with one-liners and pithy comments and sarcastic quips is nothing like having an actual conversation with someone face-to-face, particularly an ongoing conversation. And I'm just telling you, I've rarely, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen one of these online debates produce anything of value. Maybe they have, and I just didn't see it. But what I have seen instead over and over again is the Christians involved in the Facebook discussion turning on each other at some point, and they end up making all of us look like buffoons. Okay? You know I love you guys. And I can't tell you what to do, but as your pastor and as your friend, I just want to caution you to take your cues from the Apostle Paul here. Spend your time and energy when it comes to the gospel, engaged in real conversations with people, face-to-face, that are ongoing, that allow for real relationship to develop, which builds trust and rapport and mutual understanding and respect. Because in the end, that is the only way we'll ever be able to convince someone that the gospel is worth considering. Facebook and Twitter threads are inflammatory and they're counterproductive when it comes to reasoning, diolegomai, with other people. In my opinion, I think it's a colossal waste of time to get entangled in online debates. Buy someone a cup of coffee or invite them to your home or out to dinner. Start a real conversation where they can see you and hear you and experience you and your heart for the gospel and for them. All right, let's leave social media uh, for sharing recipes and cute pictures of your dog or whatever, whatever else it's good for, okay? That was a little mini sermon within the sermon and no extra charge. So let's continue our story. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great uh, many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, so as usual, Paul's met with some success, and in the the Greco-Roman world of the day, women often held prominent positions in society. As we see here, some of them were among the devout Greeks, the God-fearers that attended the synagogues, the temple, which we've witnessed with the Gentiles in other cities as well. However, also as usual, not everyone accepts the message. As we'll see, some reject the gospel as Paul continues to teach Jews and Gentiles alike while they gather in the synagogue. All right, let's keep reading verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, that's a shocker, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. We see this sort of thing happening over and over. They're seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
Okay, so Paul and Silas are staying with this local Christian named Jason, and the Jews form a secret plot to get rid of Paul and Silas, and so they go looking for them at Jason's house. And since Paul and Silas were not there, they drag Jason and some of the other Christians before the local authorities, and they accuse Paul and Silas, and with the support of the Christian community there, of turning the world upside down. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what Paul and Silas were doing. They were ushering the kingdom of God into these cities that had little to no witness of the gospel up to this point. So they were turning the world upside down. Obviously, these Jews who were hostile to the gospel intended that to be an accusation rather than a compliment. But Jason and the other believers there are required then to pay bail money, essentially, in order to be released. And yet they knew that this wasn't the end of the trouble for Paul and Silas. So they quickly moved to get them to safety. And we also know this was not what Paul had hoped for, by the way. This hasty departure from Thessalonica. It's not what Paul wanted. Because in one of his later letters to the church there in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Notice Paul recognizes the value of face-to-face interaction over correspondence, right? Verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So can you see the internal struggle for Paul when he's forced to leave one of these churches that he's worked so hard to build up and where he has so many close relationships? His desire is to be with them and continue his work, but he has to move on. And in God's providence and sovereignty, we know it was a part of his plan. Let's continue. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. That's just down the road here. And when they arrived... They went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So obviously this is a pattern with Paul. He enters a town, he goes to the synagogue, he shares the gospel, some accept it and others reject it, and typically there's a gang of angry Jews somewhere not far behind, ready to incite the local authorities and the general public against him, right? Paul seems to be continually living on the knife's edge. He walks a fine line between really exciting ministry that ignites the local believers and fosters new churches springing up everywhere he goes. And on the other hand, he's almost constantly running for his life, having to stay one step ahead of the angry mob uh, that raises its ugly head every time Paul seems to make some gains for the sake of the gospel in each new city. Again, we, we stand to learn something valuable from Paul's experiences here when it comes to making disciples of Jesus Christ because even though the religious climate and culture here in our city is very different, obviously, than the places that Paul was visiting, the results of his efforts, I believe, translate to just about any place you go. Why is that? And I've talked about this before because human culture constantly changes, but human nature never changes. People are the same, essentially, throughout the ages in terms of their nature. The point is we pursue what we desire. 
And that's the same, no matter where you go. When you're sharing the gospel, some will inevitably accept the message and others will not. And just as passionately as some are that accept the message, there will be others who just as passionately reject it. If you desire a relationship with Christ or a deeper understanding of the Word, then typically you're going to respond positively to the teaching of the Word and to the fellowship of the believers and to prayer and to study and so on. But if your desire is for something else, you probably won't respond to the ministry in the same ways. Right? Verse 5 says the Jews were jealous. Their desire was for their own power and influence, so that's what they pursued. Desire can be a great motivator, both for and against the gospel of Jesus Christ, depending upon what the desire is of those whom you're trying to minister to. And one lesson for us to pick up here is the fact that none of that seemed to lessen Paul's zeal or resolve to continue his mission. And yet I think it can be really easy for us sometimes to give up on our ministry when we don't always feel immediately affirmed by others in what we're doing. I was talking to some friends about this the other night, the fact that I've struggled with this in my own ministry for 20 years. There are times, because we're human, that we feel like giving up. You know, you cut your losses and move on when people aren't responding to your ministry the way that you want them to. And of course, there are times and seasons for everything. Sometimes we need to let a certain ministry end so another one can begin. Sometimes we need to step back from a ministry because God is recharging us and preparing us for the next step in our journey. So I'm not at all saying that once you start in some kind of ministry, that that ministry can never end or you can never take a break from that. Right? There, there are times when that's exactly what needs to happen for us to gain some perspective and for God to be able to work through others or even allow room for something new to grow. But let's not miss the fact. Paul was opposed by a lot more people than he was affirmed by. And yet he knew what his calling was and nothing was going to stop him from doing what God had called him to do because his affirmation came from the Holy Spirit and the unchanging call of God on his life, not the constantly changing desires of men and women. Remember, Paul likened his life in the ministry in 2 Timothy to a race and to a fight. You remember that? He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. His whole life he likened to a fight and to a race. Those are both tests of strength and endurance. This is a lesson for me as much as it is for anyone. We all need encouragement from other people because we're not machines. We're human and God programmed us the way that we are. So we do need human encouragement as part of what the church does in its function. But ultimately our identity and affirmation has to come from Christ, not from other men and women. Because the ministry isn't easy, it never has been, it never will be, and it certainly isn't cheap. All right, The ministry will always require a lot of hard work, it will always cost you something. And often what it costs us is the acceptance and affirmation that we long for from other people. The ministry can be very lonely at times, especially when those that you pour your life into don't always affirm what you're offering them. And that can be hard to accept, and yet sometimes that's simply a part of the process of making disciples. And so our response, unless God is calling you to a time of respite and reflection, is to pick ourselves back up when we get knocked down and continue on with the work that He's given us to do. Okay, know your calling. And then resolve yourself to carry out that calling even when it's not always well received. Because it most assuredly will not always be well received. You can count on that. 
It is very difficult to affect change in anyone's life through a, a one-time sermon or a one-time Bible study or a really convincing argument alone. All right, At least in this culture, in this generation that we live in, it was different 50 years ago when people went to a Billy Graham crusade and that was the biggest thing happening in town that they'd ever seen. And that one sermon had a profound impact on their life. It's not the same in the digital age that we live in and the amount of information that's available to people now. And even to some extent in Paul's culture, we see him going back to dialegomai, to reason with the same people over and over and over again until someone would usually run him off or kick him out of town. Because although a person may not respond to a Bible study or a sermon the first time or the first 100 times they hear it, if the basis of that person coming back and back again to that Bible study or to that preaching is a relationship, and assuming your life lines up with your message, then what happens is you're actually not only sharing the gospel through your teaching and preaching, but you're testifying to the validity of that message through your actions in the context of that relationship. And over time, a trust and a mutual respect is built. That, that person who may not have had the, the desire or the appetite for the message originally will often begin to develop a desire to see their life become more like yours in the sense that you reflect Christ. Because over time and along with the consistent teaching, an example of the gospel that they're seeing and experiencing through the relationship that they have with you, people will often begin to desire what you have, which of course we know is an active relationship with Jesus Christ. And that shift in desire for them will then, by the work of the Holy Spirit, often cause them to open their minds and their hearts to the gospel. Okay? I don't ever want to make the ministry sound like a formula, by the way. It's not a formula. But it is a process, and it involves and requires relationship. We know that ultimately it's the Holy Spirit, of course, who draws men and women sovereignly. So it's not by our own effort that people respond to the gospel. It's by the Holy Spirit through our effort that people come to desire a relationship with Jesus Christ. So don't beat yourself up. When people don't respond like you want them to, to the gospel message or to your ministry. But don't give up trying. Because people will typically only pursue what they desire. And seeing desire change in a person's life, which can happen and does often happen. But it's generally a process that takes a combination of the gospel taught and lived out over time. In the context of a meaningful relationship. Along, of course, with the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, let's pick up the story at uh, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the, to the Areopagus, excuse me, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, which we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. Paul's in Athens now. Athens was an extremely culturally rich 
and diverse city. It was filled with artistic beauty, uh, statues of Greek gods. There were architecturally magnificent pagan temples, images and structures representing their pagan idols absolutely everywhere you turned. In fact, uh, Petronius, he's a famous first century Roman author, wrote, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So Paul does something that seems to be out of the ordinary at first glance. After going to the synagogue, in verse 17, as he usually did to reason, in fact, Luke said, as was his custom, right? So as he goes there to reason, he then leaves and he goes into the town market to dialegomai. Same word, to reason with the people there. And although this seems like a new tact for Paul, we haven't seen this yet, I contend that it's actually no different from what he has been doing. Every time Paul enters a new city, he goes to the synagogue first because that's where the people in that city go to worship. And Paul wants to address what people desire the most, that which they worship. And it just so happens that in Athens, there's as much, if not more, happening in the middle of town in the way of worship as there was in the synagogue because Athens was an an epicenter of pagan worship. Idol worship there was so rampant the people were panting after false gods and the, the desire of their hearts was set on false deities and the false promises that came along with those deities and Paul was merely doing what he always did. Every time he entered a new city, he was going to the central location of worship within those cities and directly addressing the greatest desires of the hearts of those men and women. And I believe it's a mistake, by the way, when we only see this idol worship as a problem for these ancient cultures, which some Christians contend today. But I disagree. In fact, I would submit to you that idol worship is as alive and well today as it ever has been. Which brings us to our next point concerning desire. Any desire in our lives that is greater than our desire for Jesus Christ is an idol. Any desire in our lives that is greater than our desire for Jesus Christ is an idol. The first ten uh, commandment of the Ten Commandments says, You shall have no other gods before me. And yet throughout Scripture, all the way through Scripture, we see God's people desiring other things more than Him. And we see God reasoning with them, usually through others, prophets and apostles and elders and deacons, to turn their desire back to Him. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve desired a, a piece of fruit and the false promise that came with it, a promise to be like God, more than they desired their relationship with Him. And the fruit and the false promise became an idol for them. At Mount Sinai, the people of Israel desired a golden calf and the false promise that it would be their new guide and mediator and provider and protector more than they desired God himself. And the golden calf was an idol for them. In Jerusalem, David desired Bathsheba and the false promise of greater intimacy more than he desired intimacy with God. And Bathsheba became an idol for David. And the Jews throughout the New Testament desired self-righteousness and the false promise of power and prominence more than they desired a relationship with God. And the law became an idol for them. And I would submit today that the church in our generation has in many cases desired blessings from God more than we've desired God Himself. In fact, I believe this is where the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel that I speak against often, has come from. The false promise of guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. You see, the prosperity gospel would have never been as popular as it has been if the church wasn't so drunk on its own lust for material blessing. 
But so alluring is the idea of material blessing that comes from following God that many have come to a place of desiring God's blessings more than they desire God Himself. It's like those who marry for money. Right? The desire for the material benefits, they desire the material benefit of the relationship more than they desire the relationship itself. And I'm afraid that many professing Christians are marrying for the money. They see the prospect of being a part of the bride of Christ, the church, as a pathway to blessings, which it is, of course. But when that desire for blessing from Him exceeds our desire for relationship with Him, that becomes an idol in our lives. And so I think that it's good for us to periodically assess our desire when it comes to our relationship with God and our membership within the church. I do this in my own life. Do my prayers solely consist of supplications, requests of God? How much time do I actually spend meditating on Him and not asking for anything? How much time do I spend just worshiping Him on my own? Do I find joy in my service to the church and to others, even when there's no promise of reciprocal blessing from that service? In other words, when the people we're ministering to have nothing to offer us back, do we still desire to serve them? And, and maybe most significantly, do I primarily view my life as a Christian as an opportunity to completely give myself and my life away, to become less, in order that Christ may become greater in me, or do I see my life as a Christian as a way to elevate myself and my standard of living? We can sum all these questions up with this one. Do I find the most fulfillment in what God can give me or in God himself? The 19th century philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote this in his journals. He said, present day Christendom really lives as if the situation were as follows. Christ is the great hero and benefactor who has once and for all secured salvation for us. Now we must merely be happy and delighted with the innocent goods of earthly life and leave the rest to him. But Christ is essentially the exemplar. That means the example. That is, we are to resemble Him, not mere profit from Him. I'm not sure I can overstate the importance that our greatest desire in this life be for Jesus Christ Himself more than anything else, including the blessings that come along with being a follower of His. Okay? So let's finish out the chapter starting back in verse 22 where we find Paul at the Oropagus. The Oropagus is literally translated as the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. It can also be translated as Mars Hill. This is the place that the, the greatest minds in Athens would gather to share ideas and doctrines about life and religion. In fact, there was a court of the Oropagus, which was this long-established body with extensive authority over the civil and religious life of the people in Athens. And in Paul's day, they exercised jurisdiction, especially in matters of religion and morality in Athens. So this was in many ways the pagan equivalent, if you will, of Paul going to the synagogue to reason with the Jewish religious leaders and the thinkers and Gentile God-fears of high standing in, that, in, in those circles. And so here's Paul before this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and others, and he's masterfully making his case for the gospel of Jesus Christ by not only rooting his arguments in Old Testament writings, which of course appealed to the religious Jews, but he actually quotes ancient Greek pagan writings as well in a very respectful way, at least two or three ancient Greek poems in order to appeal to the Greek philosophers that were present that were familiar with that literature, okay? So let's finish out the chapter, verse 22. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, remember this verse, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring, but then God's offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which we will judge, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now then, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So Paul reasons with these pagans, much in the same way that he does in the synagogues with the religious Jews. He engages them on an intellectual level. He establishes a historical basis for his arguments using texts that are familiar with his audience. He presents the gospel message and then he gives a testimony of Jesus as the risen Christ. And interestingly enough, the result of that is very much the same as the response that he gets in the synagogues. Some believe and join him and others reject his message. So despite the obvious differences between the Jewish synagogue and its God-fearing adherents and the Oropagus and its pagan worshipers, we see a commonality between the two in as far as the response to Paul's message. Why is that? I believe it's because all of those who genuinely desire the truth will find it. Regardless of what the idols are in a person's life, whether they be religious or material or other, they're still idols that we've allowed to supplant Christ in our own lives. And so whatever the object of our desire is, if not Jesus Christ, there's always hope as long as we're breathing for truth to be found once a real desire for truth exists. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He also said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. When we genuinely desire the truth and abide in God's word, we come to know Christ as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds to receive the gospel. All those who genuinely desire the truth will find it. I'm convinced of that, which is what Paul was trying to communicate to the Athenians in his talk in the Areopagus. Remember verses 26 and 27. Paul said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, he put us all here. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. 
Yet he's actually not far away from each of us. In other words, God is always close by. All we need to do is seek him, desire to know the one true God. That's key. In verse 23, we see that some of the pagan worshipers in Athens were worshiping an unknown God. In fact, they had built an altar to this unknown God, which suggests a desire by at least some of them to worship the one true God, but they didn't know who he was. And yet we know that they were seeking the truth because Paul says, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, is the God who made the world and everything in it. Some of these pagan religionists and philosophers were seeking the truth. Others were not. But I believe it was those that had that desire for the truth that accepted Paul's message of the gospel. And yet if there is no desire for the truth, it doesn't matter how much we're confronted with it. Because we pursue what we desire. That was the first point of our outline today. And when our desire is fixed on something other than the truth, which is Jesus Christ, then we will continue to serve other idols that we've put in place of God in our lives. It is not until we come to a place of genuinely desiring Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, that we will ever fully accept the message of the gospel. I witness to people all the time. And in my experience, what I've found in those who cannot seem to ever get to the place where they accept the message of the gospel, time and again, are people, in my estimation, who are not genuinely seeking the truth. They're not genuinely seeking, seeking Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Rather, they're seeking justification, either for a lifestyle that they've chosen that they don't want to give up, or for some other belief system that they've already accepted as truth. And I understand that the same can be said of Christians, and that's correct. But the reason that Paul didn't have to dabble in every other lifestyle and belief system and religion before he could conclude that Jesus Christ was the only way to the one true God is because he personally experienced Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Right? Paul had a first-hand experience on the road to Damascus with Jesus that validated the gospel for him. Well, guess what? So have I. So have many of you, right? Maybe all of you. I don't know. And if you haven't, if you're struggling with the message of the gospel as absolute truth for your own life, let me repeat the words of Jesus. Everyone who asks receives, and then the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Again, Paul said he's actually not far from each one of us. So I'm not saying that all those who have yet to arrive at the gospel as truth for themselves are not really seeking the truth. I'm not saying that. Many who have not yet fully accepted the message are absolutely seeking the truth. What I'm saying is that I believe that those people who really are seeking the truth, seeking Jesus Christ, will eventually come to the truth. I believe they will eventually come to Jesus Christ because he said as much. It's those who never do arrive at the truth that I personally believe we're never really seeking the truth at all. And so the answer for all of those who genuinely are struggling with what is true is to seek Jesus Christ. Desire to know Him. And when you come to that place of real desire to know Him, you will have your own experience, whatever that is, that validates the gospel for you. How do I know that? Because he said, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. We pursue what we desire. If there's no desire for Jesus Christ, we will not pursue him, and therefore we're not pursuing the truth. And by the way, Paul did not continue on forever with those that rejected the message. 
He shook the dust off of his feet. He shook out his clothing. It says, do not cast your pearls before swine. There are people that will never accept the truth because they will not seek Jesus Christ. And Paul moved on. Okay? Our responsibility as followers of Christ is to keep our own desire fixed on him above all else. Always continuing in our attempts to make disciples, knowing that some will, will accept the message and some will not. And accepting that ultimately it's only by the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit that anyone can come to saving grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, When Jesus' disciples asked him who can be saved, what did he say? He said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. So what is your greatest desire? If not Christ, then what? What could possibly compare? What could possibly fill the void in our lives like Jesus Christ? Paul answers that question in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Give Him everything that you have and all that you are. And if, if you haven't already, make Him your greatest desire and watch your life become fulfilled in ways that you never imagined it could be. Okay? I want to ask the worship team to come back.